this is Maureen Milliken. And this is Rebecca Milliken, and this is Crime and Stuff. And we're the podcast. You would do if you had nothing better to do. That's right. I think our website has it wrong. I could always fix that. Because I kept getting it mixed up. We went back and forth because it was a spontaneous thing. Yes. We're also the podcast that always starts with a laugh. We're always laughing because when we, we always mess up. <laughs> I know because we're beginning. Screw up. And we're recording today on a Sunday, Easter early in the Sunday, day. and it's also April Fool's Day. Yes, and I was fooled by NPR this morning. They said they were getting rid of the puzzler, and I was very, very upset. And it was an April Fool's joke. Yes, I'm not a big fan of April Fool's or April Fool's jokes. I'm not either. I've never understood I don't like pranks the point. And I don't like pranks jokes. or practical jokes. I find that. Why trick people like that? Maybe I'm. Know. It's because I'm a linear thinker and just kind of straightforward. I feel like it's mean. Anyway, the other thing about Easter, I just want to say something about Easter because in this what, that the Easter money doesn't exist. <laughs> it does not. Oh. Except for it did seem I to did, bring you I some brought candies. you some jelly beans and no, candy. No, there seems to be an assumption, and maybe it's because we live, we've lived in largely Christian areas, that everyone celebrates Easter. Like the weathermen, oh, your Easter is going to be cloudy and a little cool, blah, blah, blah. And when I was an editor, I used to ask reporters when they discussed Easter in a news story to not say, it's when Jesus rose from the dead. But to say it's when Christians believe yes. Jesus rose from the dead because everybody doesn't believe that Jesus yes, rose from the dead. True. And I know that we were raised in a religion, Catholicism, that when I look back seemed based entirely on three days yes. in Jesus's life. I remember in re- religion class us rarely talking about the Old Testament. No, I know we did, but, but Christi- it seems Christianity like yeah. the, the three days the leading yeah. up to Jesus's death and resurrection. Well, were, it is. I know. And Judaism obviously doesn't believe that. There are other religions or there are people. And so what I'm saying is there's people who are either reporting news or in the public talking should not operate from the assumption that everyone has the same religious beliefs they do. Yeah. And I know when I used to say that to reporters, you know, it's another thing, chalk up another thing that would get me in trouble at work, I guess. Another big they black just roll mark. roll their eyes at you. Well, and I think, too, there was a feeling that I was disparaging religion or talking about religion when I shouldn't. But I think the concept's pretty easy to understand. Yeah. That it's when Christians believe Jesus rose from the dead. And I know if you're a Christian who believes it, you take it on faith that it really happened. But that doesn't mean everybody. Does. Right. And you need to understand that that's your faith. But that's not what everybody believes. When I came home from work Friday night, Hannah and her father were celebrating Passover. And she said, Daddy and I are celebrating Passover because we're Jewish, but you don't. And I said, that's true because I'm not Jewish. We don't really celebrate Easter too, but we enjoy the non-religious aspect of it, like Easter eggs. On another note, (laughs) I have an update. Oh, is that all right? What, do I make the rules around here? <laughs> no, you don't. You know. Yes, I would like right. to hear your update. Well, you know, in episode seven, way back when, Ooh. we talked about Luke Tiemann. That was our Mains Murderers. Ugh. Mains yeah, Murderers and the Women Who Love yes. Them episode. And it was, I think people should listen to it if they haven't. There's a lot yes. of good stuff in there. Yes. Just as a recap, he's the guy whose wife, quote unquote, disappeared from a Walmart parking hmm. lot in Skowhegan, Maine. In August 2016, Valerie Tiemann is the name of the woman. Her parents, who lived out of state, I think it was South Carolina, I'm not sure, reported her missing more than two weeks after Luke last says he saw her. So he last saw her like August 25th or 26th. 
They reported her missing September 10th, 2016. Five days after that, after she was reported missing by her parents, not him, he said they'd had an argument on August 26th, he thinks, or 25th in the Walmart parking lot. And she stayed in his truck and he went into Walmart. And when he came out, she was gone. Hmm. And he figured she stormed off because they had an yeah, argument. in the Walmart parking and, lot. And, you know, two weeks later when her parents reported her missing, he still had it. But surveillance video of the parking lot showed that his truck wasn't there at all between August 21st to August 31st. Police looked. Her body was found buried in the backyard of um, the Fairfield, Maine home where they lived with his parents. Hmm. On September 10th, 2016. And every news report you see or read will say she was found buried in a shallow grave. Another one of those cliches I hate. If somebody hand buries somebody, it's usually a shallow grave. Yeah. And I think it's just okay well, to say Well, I buried. wonder if he, if his parents were there too and it was a trail. to come out. If they were like aware that he's digging this big hole. Who, who, well, it wasn't a big hole because it was a shallow grave. Well, yeah, but big enough for a person. Well, who knows it's what parents a hole you are. In any case, like they had some land out behind their house. Okay. Yeah, you know, that's like a tangent. But, I'm sorry. Um, so Tiemann, 34, who's a disabled Army vet, then said after her body was found that she died of a drug overdose. And famously, at least Maine said she smiled at him as he uh. watched her die. But the autopsy showed she actually died of two gunshot wounds <laughs> to the head and neck. <laughs> and they weren't self-inflicted. The body was wrapped in a blanket with a bag of potato chips that Mm. the TV news seems to just constantly harp on. Well, that's because it's weird. A bottle of perfume Mm. and a note that reportedly had an apologetic tone. Just kind of like an Egyptian sarcophagus. Yeah, maybe, or maybe somebody... uh, (laughs) Who knows what the murderer's mindset was. Luke Tiemann has been charged with murder and pleaded not guilty. So that's the background. Jury selection was last week for his trial. By the time you get this, it may be over. I'm Friday, his attorney, Stephen Smith, who's been in He's some of been our in other some of our episodes, episodes yes. asked that an alternative suspect defense be allowed. Ha! And <laughs> this is from the Morning Sentinel reported by Doug Harlow hmm. from the trial. Smith told the judge, Robert Mullen, that gentleman, and I love the way they say gentleman. I hate that. I and by When I say I love, I hate cops, lawyers, that the alternative suspect, who was apparently a drug dealer or somebody involved in drugs, quote, had access, had motive, and noted that the primary alternative suspect, quote, has a drug history and has had a drug issue. Valerie Tiemann also was a drug user, and this is from the stories. Smith said, The autopsy revealed the presence of a synthetic opioid used to treat opioid addiction and another used as a painkiller. Assistant Attorney General Leanne Zanea, the prosecutor, disagreed with Smith, saying in order to use the alternative suspect theory, there must be more than mere speculation that someone else might have been involved in her death, and there needs to be a connection to evidence under Maine law. For evidence regarding alternative suspects, Maine courts will admit evidence if the offered proof is admissible at trial and if the admissible evidence is, quote, of sufficient probative value to raise a reasonable doubt as to the defendant's culpability by establishing a reasonable connection between the alternative suspect and the crime. In other words, there it can't just be pulled out of somebody's yeah. ass. You can't there just has, say there might have been somebody else. Right. And Smith said his motion meets those demands. This is a quote. There is evidence. There is opportunity. There is motive, Smith said. Something about a drug dispute between two drug users. Please. And the judge, Robert Mullen, said he would take the motion under advisement and would rule before Monday's opening of the trial, which is tomorrow. Um, Stephen Smith also offered another motion. He wants to exclude from the record 
Tiemann's use of the words, quote, rebound girl, in reference to a woman in Norwich Walk with whom he had an intimate relationship about the same time his wife was reported missing. Smith said those words were spoken casually and might even be demeaning to women. Uh. Assistant Attorney General Leon Robin, who is prosecuting the case with Zania, so we have two Assistant Attorney Generals, both with the first name Leanne, prosecuting this case said those were the words used by the defendant when he was interviewed by state police detectives, and they should stick with them. You know, too bad if he said something he regrets. She said Tiemann first told police that he and Valerie had been staying with the woman, but later changed the story, noting that Valerie had never lived there. And I think this was all before her body was found that he made these statements. Yeah. So he's calling this woman a rebound woman, a rebound girl, even before it's determined his wife has been killed. But he did say she left him, so. Right. And Robin told Mullen that Luke Tiemann had a relationship with the woman, quote, the night he murdered his wife. Yeah. You know, that's bad writing. He didn't have a relation with <laughs> relationship with her that he, night. I would say he had relations with yeah. her that night. And Mullen is also taking that under advisement. And in our next episode, when this trial will probably be over, I'll have another update about oh, how all that came out and how the trial we'll came see, out. We'll see what happens. Maybe he'll just plead. He should. But well, you know, innocent until proven guilty. Blah blah I blah. Know, I know. But there's a huge preponderance. Yeah, but I'm not the court. Right, we're not a court. And also lucky for him. And also the evidence is hugely against him. And it's one of those things not to get into a long thing about this because it's only an update, but men don't understand if they would just pay attention to how women operate. A woman isn't going to get up and leave from a parking lot with none of her stuff. I know. We got a lot of stuff. Right. She's not going to not call her parents. She may not call you if you're an asshole if she's left you, but she's sure as hell going to talk to her parents. And usually her sisters. And her her sisters and her friends. Just because you're not the focus of her attention anymore doesn't mean she doesn't have other people in her life. Yeah, I don't think they pay much attention to women's other, what's going on in the woman's life. They just kind of. Right. Because it's all about them. Yeah. It's all about them. They're like, oh yeah, I think she has some friends and stuff. I mean, and some of not all men are like that, but the, right. I'm talking about the type of man that's right. narcissistic so enough to kill his Right, wife. and so that's why the whole, she just took off on me, not especially when there's kids and stuff, doesn't pass the straight face no. test, no. even for cops in a lot of cases, no. because the woman isn't doing things a woman who took off on a guy would do. No. And I think most cops are smart enough. Right, and as we talked about in episode 7 too, this is similar in a couple ways to the Rennie's Belfast, the, Vir- the Virginia Douglas case yes, in 1988, yes, we do discuss that. where the guy from Rennies. Lexington, Mass, said his wife went into picture. yeah went into the Rennie's in Belfast and never came out again. Maybe Rennie's should be one of our. And sponsors. I cannot go by that Rennie's without thinking of that. Probably. I even have a picture we can put on our website at some point. Yeah. But okay. anyway, that's my update. Do you have any updates or anything? I don't think so. Oh, good. Then we can get right to our story. I, I probably should keep a list of my things. Maybe that, at some point we can just go through. I like to do these ones that are older. I know, because you don't have to update them. Okay. So today I'm doing one that is, it's from about nine years ago. Okay. Nine years ago. And it's got a twist because it's not a guy who killed a woman. No. And it's also no one died. Oh, yeah, that's right. That's right. I forgot that part. So let's start. I don't want to give too much away because I, right. I have the flow of the story in a certain way. Okay, I get so, that. Yeah. I do that, too. The evening of Saturday, April 11th, 2009, was a romantic evening in the Dolliff home, according to Linda Dolliff. The Dolliffs lived in a house in Standish, Maine, about 30 minutes 
drive west of Portland. It's about 20 miles. And I'm not going to say kilometers. You guys can figure that yeah, out. Yeah, do the math. Linda and her husband, Jeff, had a nice dinner, a few glasses of wine, and relaxed in the hot tub. Mm. After, that's, that's the 90s version of, or the early 2000s version of Netflix and yes. chill. Afterward, they had sex. About 3 a.m., April 12th. Linda got up to go sleep in another room as Jeff had begun snoring. Mm. As Linda recalled to investigators and later on to Jim Avila of the ABC show 2020, she was walking down the hall and heard incensed movement, then heard a bang. She felt a sharp pain and fell to the floor. She realized she'd been shot in the torso in the area of her, of her right hip. She said it was too dark to see who had shot her and her eyes had closed when she fell. When she opened them, she saw a gun on the floor in front of her. She said, I reached for the gun. I made contact with it. It fired. It scared me. Certainly my husband would be here, and I called out to him. Got no response. I heard him gurgling. Mm. Linda made it to a phone and called 911. On the 911 call, she is yelling and distraught. She says, he shot me. He shot me. The 911 operator says, your husband shot you? She says, no, my husband, he's in bed. He's not answering me. I just hear this gurgling noise. Hmm. Then she keeps screaming, oh, my God, and Jeff, Jeff. <laughs> it's kind of annoying. I didn't listen to the whole 911 call because I couldn't find the whole one. I couldn't find the Was whole. that on YouTube or something? It's on YouTube, yeah. Eh. Um, but I want to just point out here, too, you'll see in a lot of these, like, that sometimes when there's too much information in the 911 call, it's suspicious. Yes. Too much like detail. Like when she's saying he's Googling. Right. Yeah. Why do you have to wreck I'm my sorry. story? I didn't listen to the whole 911 call because I couldn't find the whole call online. According to the Portland Press-Herald's coverage of the trial, it lasted about a half an hour. At one point... Wow, during, a half an hour 911 call? Well, they kept her on the oh, line oh, until yeah, people right. came because Duh. they thought there was an intruder. Mm-hmm. And, and it takes know. forever to get to Standish. Well, we'll get to I'm that. sorry. At one point during the call, Linda Dolloff put the phone down for about six minutes, and loud banging is heard in the background, but no one could explain what caused the noise. They never mentioned that later, the banging. That's the, the only time I heard it was... That's weird. ...in the coverage of the trial. That's weird. I didn't read the whole trial transcript. Did they depict what the banging sounded no. like? Did anybody no, say No, she it? just put the phone down for six minutes. And then they heard That's banging. Probably During Linda's call to 911, Sergeant Jim Estabrook of the Cumberland County Sheriff's Department happened to be in the area and responded to the call while Linda was still on the phone. He said as he drove up, he saw what he described as a flash or a person in the front door window. Linda was still on the call. He asked the 911 operator to have Linda turn the lights on and come out the front door. Linda opened the front door and stumbled out, falling face first onto the front steps. Her dog Zoe also ran out of the house. And I tried to find out what kind of breed dog Zoe was and was not able to. I think I saw her, and there was a 48 hours or a dateline. It was a 2020, but they didn't show the dog at all. I think there was also a 48 hours or a dateline. Oh, where I, did I miss it? I, maybe not, but I thought the dog was around later, but anyway. Okay. Estabrook was with another deputy as they approached the house. He asked Linda if she was okay and had she been shot, but she didn't answer him. He entered the home gun drawn. He saw no one in the front hall and started up the stairs. He saw a shell casing on the second step and another one about halfway up. And as he reached the top of the stairs, he saw a handgun on the floor of the hallway. He went down the hall to Jeff's bedroom and found Jeff on the bed, naked and covered in blood. Ew. He was lying with his head at the foot of the bed. 
It was clear he needed immediate help if he was going to survive. In the meantime, the other police and emergency responders were arriving. The paramedics expressed doubt that Jeff would live. His head was bashed in. Wow. Both Linda and Jeff were taken to Maine Medical Center in Portland. The police searched the property for intruders. A police dog, a German Shepherd named Jag, oh. was at the scene to sniff out anyone who might be hiding. Good for Jag. This is a large property with several buildings, which we'll talk about later. The doggy picked up some scents. There was a track between the garage door and the family cars. There was a second scent, which was older. Somehow they knew it was older. I don't know how. That went across a field to Jeff Dolos brother's home. I'll talk about it later, but it's a large family property mm-hmm. that has several... A compound. Well, it's not really a compound. It's just that... Right. Um, we'll talk about it later. In Linda and Jeff's kitchen, the drawers had all been pulled out. The glove compartments in the cars had been opened. Hmm. In the bedroom where Jeff had been found, the weapon police believe inflicted his injuries was on the floor near his bed, a softball bat. It was covered in blood and partially burned. And then they never talk about the fact that it was partially burned. So it must later. have been a wooden softball. Yeah, it bat. was an old wooden softball yeah. bat. I've only heard it in the like initial police report. Yeah, that's so. weird. I know that is weird. Maybe like, it had been partially burned before. Yes. The... Although I, we'll talk about it okay. later because I have some theories. All right. After I'm done with my presentation, I always have theories. Yeah, me but. too. On the bedroom floor, an envelope with $1,500 in cash lay. Also on the bedroom floor was Jeff's wallet, which had about $300 in cash in it. Jeff later told police that the gun used to shoot Linda had been in the top drawer of the dresser in his bedroom under the envelope containing the $1,500 cash. Jeff's adult daughter lived in an apartment attached to the house with her boyfriend. Neither she nor her partner were aware of any of the goings-on until police knocked on her window. So they didn't hear anything. At the hospital, Linda had to have surgery where the bullet had torn up her flesh and blood vessels. Mm. And although no major organs were damaged, pieces of the bullet were lodged right above her hip. Or as Cumberland County District Attorney Stephanie Anderson later put it, her love handle. (laughs) Actually, I laughed when she said that, but... It's a good description because it tells, it's like in the fleshy part, right? Right. No, this, Linda Dolloff was very fit and petite. Yeah. So she didn't really have love handles. Jeff had much more severe injuries. Mm. He was in critical condition with skull fractures on both sides, a broken nose, broken cheekbones, and bone fragments in his skull, it says. But, I mean, that's what I read, bone fragments in his skull, but basically bone fragments right. had gone into his brain. Right. Jeff later described his injuries saying, I had a nose bone shoved up into my brain. Wow. What I'm left with today is someone else's teeth in the front and no teeth in the back. I can't smell, can't taste. The side of my face, I have feeling, but it's almost like it's in Novocaine. My eye waters all the time. The people that worked on me, God bless them, they put Humpty Dumpty back together again. Wow. He also said his legs were right full of blood clots. Mm-hmm. This is something that will plague him the rest of his life. He'll need to take blood thinners for the wow. rest of his life. Linda was let out of the hospital after a few days and went to her sister's house to recover. Jeff was in a coma for weeks. He spent over a week in Maine Medical Center and then was transferred to the Leahy Clinic in Massachusetts for about three weeks. After he woke up, he came back to Maine and spent more time in a rehabilitation hospital in Portland. He had no memory of the attack or the night preceding it. No surprise given his head injury. It's pretty common for people with head injuries to experience retroactive memory loss. People will forget things that happened even before the event that caused the injury. Mm -hmm. 
Jeff did not remember his romantic evening with Linda. Who would want to attack these two people? Who? Linda was, as described by those who knew her, peace-loving, gentle, kind, a yoga practitioner and instructor. She said it was a way of life, not just a hobby or physical activity. Their home had a yoga studio where she held weekly classes. She also enjoyed making pottery, gardening, and loved animals. Mm, Typical Maine woman. Jeff was a corporate consultant. His job entailed a lot of traveling, and he was gone for days at a time. He admitted that the nature of his job, which often cost others their jobs, made him some enemies. In his grand jury testimony, he said, Who would want me hurt? I can give you a list of a thousand names. Wow. Yeah, me too. I like I thought, that. I thought, yeah. Yeah, we roll like that. I can yeah. give you a million yeah. names. Who doesn't want me <laughs> Jeff and Linda were married on a cruise ship in 1998. From what I could gather, they had dated about a year prior to marrying. It was not his first marriage. He had three teenage daughters from a previous marriage. They didn't seem to like their new stepmom Mm-mm. too much either. Linda was about 35 when they married, and I don't know if she'd been married prior to Jeff, it was difficult finding out background information on her because she's not famous or anything except right. for, you know. Except for this. So I don't know where she grew up. She obviously had a Maine accent or New England, like maybe New Hampshire, but right. otherwise I don't know. And nobody wrote articles like who were these I people. I know, it would have been nice. Yeah. But maybe if someone wrote a book about it, Mo. Mm, right. Jeff is six years older than Linda. Jeff and Linda lived in a house that they built together, literally doing a lot of the house building work themselves, even milling and planing their own lumber. Linda was very involved in a lot of the physical labor of the home building. She loved the home and said it was like being on vacation every day. Hmm. But her love of the home and the work she put into it would come back to haunt her later. The house sat on land that had been in the Doloff family for six generations. Many of Jeff's relatives had homes on the property, and the road is Doloff Road. Sorry, I keep calling it Doloff, Doloff, Doloff. No, whatever. You know what those little people, big world little people, that's their name too. I was wondering, wow. I was trying to think, who has the same last name? Crazy coincidence. <laughs> Linda said that when she and Jeff first got together, he told her that he had been waiting his whole life for someone to love the Dolliff land as much as he did. Mm. And she did. Yet, when they finally had the house built, when they finally moved in, and I'm unclear on when this was, but I think it was probably about 2000, they moved into separate bedrooms. Their marriage was already rocky. They had talked about divorce almost as long as they had been married. Wow. For 10 years prior to the attack. Linda would push for reconciliation and Jeff would agree for a while. They still had a sex life and did things together, just not all the time. Did it say what their issues were? Like why? Okay. As I said, he traveled a lot, and she had her yoga and her other interests. Linda said Jeff was her hero. He always looked out for her, and as we'll see, he continued to do so as events unfolded. Mm. In In early spring of 2009, Jeff told Linda he had had enough. He wanted to end their marriage. According to Jeff, I gave her a pad of paper and a pen and told her to write down everything she wanted. Wow. I know. Informal discussions went on for a few weeks. About two weeks before his head was bashed in, Jeff and Linda Dolliff agreed to the final settlement terms while taking a soak in the hot tub. Jeff said, My experience is when you're having an unpleasant conversation, it's easy to walk away. It's kind of hard to walk away when you're in a hot tub. <laughs> Jeff never fully explained why he wanted a divorce, just that the marriage wasn't working and Linda and his daughters didn't get along. Mm-hmm. He said Linda was never happy anymore. Linda, for her part, always wanted to get back together and thought there was a chance they might. She said the door was still open. I think that was just 
wishful thinking on her yeah. part. And yet, his will at the time of his attack still left everything, almost everything to Linda. Ah. But Linda wasn't happy a few years prior to the incident when Jeff set up a trust fund in case of his death. Linda and Jeff had bought a 215-acre parcel of land from Jeff's cousin. And this trust, in case of Jeff's death, Linda would have had to have Jeff's brother's approval to sell it. Right, because he wanted it in the family. Yes. That must have been overall a very large family. It is a very large. It doesn't say exactly how big it is. If they had 215 acres. It's a very large parcel of land, and it's a large family. Yeah. Well, you figure six generations. Yeah. uh, uh, All those people branching out. Mm Mm-hmm. The final divorce settlement terms they agreed on about two weeks before the attack were half of a house the couple owned in Buxton, which is a neighboring town, worth about a hundred to one hundred and thirty thousand dollars, which will be paid out over ten years in cash. Half ownership of the tract of land I mentioned earlier, and the right to stay in an apartment attached to the house for a year, with Jeff paying all of Linda's living expenses. Wow. Jeff said Linda insisted on the apartment. Quote. Because after six months, I would realize she was the most special person in my life Hmm. and would be back in my life. I think she also probably realized being a yoga instructor doesn't really bring in that much money. Yeah, but still, she she doesn't say, like in the 2020 interviews or anything, she does say that she had her own money and everything when she married him. And she was like in her mid-30s, but like, you know, she could get a job. Yes, but sometimes people don't want to do that. Well, she's accustomed to it. Well, maybe she had a job. She married Jeff. It was just able to be a yoga instructor yeah. out of their nice, well, pretty should... house in the country. Yeah. Well, we'll, so go, anyway. we'll talk about that. Right. 2020 said he offered to build her a home on the land, but I didn't find the information anywhere else, and I find it doubtful. Mm-hmm. Why would he want her living there indefinitely? I seriously doubt he was going to be- I think yeah. they met the apartment. I mean, he said right. she could live in that apartment. An article in the Press Herald said that Linda wanted $100,000 for the work she did on the house. I don't know if this was the money referred to earlier or another $100,000, but I think it was a separate settlement right. of 100000 because something else I read in a court document cleared it up after I wrote this, but I didn't feel like going back. And yeah, I got gotcha. In any case, Jeff said he didn't want to pay her more than the 40000 for the work she did because he owned the land and he did some other work. I don't know. He said, I questioned it very loudly. But he agreed to it as long as she didn't argue over other stipulations in the divorce agreement. Jeff said the $60,000 was paid for no more discussion. Also a short time before the attack, Jeff told Linda he was having a guest the weekend after Easter, which was the weekend. The weekend he was attacked was Easter weekend. Oh, what a coincidence. I know. I didn't even think of that. An Easter crime. Yes. So he was having a guest the weekend after Easter, which was the weekend of April 18th. Apparently, while working down in Massachusetts, Jeff had met a woman, and he wanted her to come for the weekend to visit the Doloff homestead. Mm. He wanted her to meet his daughters, the animals, and his mom. Mm. The animals. That's pretty serious. Yeah. He wanted Linda to make herself scarce for the weekend. Who can blame the guy? He even offered to send her on a cruise, all expenses paid. But Linda was like, nope, and said she wanted to meet the woman. That's just weird. Wow. Now, she See, according to Linda, the divorce was amicable. Everything was fine and she was comfortable with the settlement. Mm. But I can't imagine anyone would be thrilled to see your replacement come. I would want to take the money and start my new life somewhere Me off the Doloff too. compound. But also for the weekend, he wasn't telling her to move out right then. He was just saying, can you leave right. for the weekend? Right. I would have said, yeah, okay, set me up in the Regency or somewhere nice. Right. I mean, I would have right. gone. I mean, especially if you're okay with it. 
So, back to the supposed home And also, if I were him, I'd be like, I'm trying to get with this chick. She's going to think I'm weird if my ex-wife is hanging around, checking her out. And she's not really his ex-wife yet. Yeah. My wife, who I'm not yet. I have a feeling he he met many people on the road. I have a feeling. um, But back to He was handsome, right? He's a handsome guy. He he was. In kind of a Magnum P.I. kind of way. He was. He's kind of. They called him. They said he had rugged good looks. He was kind of a, he was a good-looking guy. A tall, good-looking yeah. guy. Yeah. So back to the home invasion. At first, police took Linda's story at face value and tried to figure out who would have a reason to try to break into the home. But even though Jeff admitted to having many enemies, he didn't think any would be angry enough to break into his home. And about a month prior to the incident at the Dolliff home, there had been a home invasion not far away where the intruder used a baseball bat as a weapon. Mm. But that guy was already in custody by the night of April mm. 11th, 12th. Police also thought the timing was odd. Why would someone choose a holiday weekend when there were five cars in the driveway to break in? Mm-hmm. To some of them, the crime scene seemed staged. Nothing mm-hmm. was really missing. And why would someone leave so much cash behind? No kidding. It's cash. Also, the baseball bat was stored in the garage, the one that was used um, behind some tools and stuff. And there were other bats in plain sight that someone could have grabbed. Right. Was there any sign of a break-in? No. No, there wasn't. Mm-hmm. But they might have left some of their doors yeah. unlocked because people who live in the country do all the time. I do. Ooh. Well, it doesn't matter because my doors are so crappy, they don't really There's close anyway. No, yeah, I know. I, I pity the fool who pity. breaks into my house looking for something to steal. And there were about two dozen guns in the home by Jeff's count. Holy shit. Why would someone who is unfamiliar with the lay of the house use a gun they found in a drawer under some stuff instead of other guns that were more easily found? Uh, under $1,500 in cash, and you throw the $1,500 in cash on the floor and take that. the gun? Well, Detective Bill Ross of the State Police interviewed Linda later on in the day after the attack while she was in the hospital recovering from surgery. He interviewed her again five days later. In the second interview, she told the detective her marriage was a little rocky and they had discussed divorce, Mm. but neglected to mention that they actually had agreed to a divorce settlement weeks earlier. She was asked if she was involved with another man and she said, no, I've had no outside things going on. Mm. That's That's a weird way to put it. Yeah. What about Jeff, another woman, she was asked? Linda thought, quote, Jeff could be interested in another woman, but she had, according to Linda, zero concerns about him having an affair. Hmm. She gave police names of women Jeff had worked with in Massachusetts, but didn't think there were any jilted lovers, as she called them, who would want to attack her or Jeff. She didn't think Jeff's ex-wife had anything to do with it either. Police did look into these women and didn't find anything. Later, when Jeff was out of his coma, Detective Ross asked him if Linda wanted a divorce, and Jeff said he didn't think so. Mm-hmm. While visiting Jeff in the hospital, Ross decided they should give Linda a call and record it. Jeff was still not sure Linda would have something to do with the attack, but he was willing to see what a conversation with her would bring up. Ross was hoping hearing Jeff's voice would unnerve Linda enough to make her admit to something. So, And in Maine, it is legal to record a conversation as, as long as one of the participants is aware of the recording. Right, and that's usually the one making the recording. Yeah. But So, so he's in the hospital. She he was probably in the rehab hospital. Oh, okay, because yeah. I'm like... It was after he woke up. It was at least three or four weeks after the attack. Right, but it's like it would unnerve her to hear his voice, blah, blah, blah. Well, if you're the person's spouse, aren't you visiting them in the hospital? This is what I don't understand. When you hear the recording on the phone call, to me it sounds like she hasn't 
talk to him. So let me tell you what okay, they said yeah. in the phone call. Listening to the recording, it seemed like this was the first time Linda had spoken to Jeff since the attack. When she heard his voice, she cried, Jeff, can I come see you? So maybe he had just woken up. So maybe she had seen, visited him, but he was, he was in a coma. Yeah. I mean, he was in a coma for like almost a month. I know, but... I don't know. It just uh, it sounds with the way she says Jeff. It sounds like he hasn't put, spoken. Put to it her. this way: if I were, I know this all really happened. If I were reading this in a fiction novel, I know I'd be like, wait, the, there's giant holes here because if you're the spouse, even if you're getting a divorce, especially if you're the spouse who wants to stay together, you're by that person's side as I much know. as possible. Unless, unless because of her injury, she couldn't go. Well, she was. I mean, they they make light of her injury, the prosecution, but she was. I, I understand that. Went. I'm just trying. I mean, to, yeah, to I know. I understand. No, I thought it was not the dots, I thought it was weird, too. Anyway. When I first saw it, it was an interview on 2020 with Detective Ross. And when I first saw it, I did, until I heard the phone conversation, I thought well, she probably had been speaking to him, but, you know, right. they didn't But if you're him. the reporter in that case, you say, so wait, they hadn't spoken to each other. Well, Why is that? 2020. What do you expect? I don't know. She's like, Jeff, can I come see you? And he says something like, I hear that someone took a baseball bat to me and shot you. Is that right? Linda said, I was shot. I don't know what happened to you specifically. I don't know. We got in the hot tub and had some wine. Oh, we made love. After a while, you started snoring. I couldn't sleep. I went back to the other bedroom. Then she says she was heading to the bathroom when she heard a loud bang and fell. Jeff said, the way my injuries look, it looked like someone took a baseball bat to me, not a gun. Took out both eye sockets, took out my throat, took out my head on both sides. Linda said, oh, my God. Yeah, that's what I would say, too. Jeff said, why would they beat me with a baseball bat and shoot you with my gun? They were sitting on $1,500 cash they left in a drawer. Linda said, I have no friggin' idea. <laughs> I like that. So vain. See, no I know. Idea. And that's good on her part, too, because it's better than trying to give a theory. Jeff said, you should have heard somebody 10 feet away from you. You should have seen somebody 10 feet away from you. A lot of this shit doesn't make sense to me. This is going to cost me the rest of my life. Linda said, are you saying you think I had something to do with this? And Jeff said, well, there's only one person in the world who's pissed off at me right now, and that's you. And later... Good line. Yeah. Jeff's got a lot of good lines. Eh? Yeah. Later, Linda would tell 2020 that she didn't regret anything she said in that phone conversation she said she knew that jeff was just trying to figure out what happened and work through it in his mind and despite jeff agreeing to bait linda on the recorded phone call months later he said he didn't believe linda was quote emotionally capable of inflicting such injuries on him it's also quoted as psychologically capable so i don't know which is right uh, portland press herald because yes. you had both reported well, maybe they don't know the difference but also have you ever noticed on these true crime shows whenever the police try to get a person to call the person and get them to implicate themselves, the person never, well, ever, ever implicates themselves. Come on. They'd have to be fucking I know, more. I'm just saying. Yeah, I hit you with the bat, honey. <laughs> and Sorry. you had it coming, you asshole. Um, and and nobody's ever going to know but you and me. Because <laughs> <I know. laughs> I'll just say that this conversation never took It's place. not like this conversation's <laughs> being recorded or anything. In June 2009, Linda was interviewed a third time at the Maine State Police Headquarters in Gray. Which I designed their kitchen and their break room, by the way. Wow, really? Yeah. Was it on this? And I liked was it on twenty twenty? No. No, because it was it was just recently. And it was um it was a retiring guy. His name was McDonough. I liked him. He was very nice. Was it Brian McDonough? 
Yeah. Well, he was in the he was one of the cops in the Amy um St. Lawrence. Oh, he was. He's really nice. Yeah. He was one of the stars of that book. He was retiring. He said that um said, So what? That he, said, they were oh, letting him design a kitchen. No, he and, was like the boss or I can't remember what yeah, his he was. Yeah, he was a big shot. But I said to him, I said, Does this mean if I get stopped? If you stop me, you won't give me a ticket since you like your kitchen and he said, I wouldn't even know how to give a ticket anymore and plus I'm retiring and yeah, I just saw and him. Recently. He did murders not ticket given anything. Anyway. He's very nice. Anyways, oh, I have so many questions. Oh, okay. Anyway, so <laughs> in the Maine State Police headquarters in Gray. The interview was also recorded. Mm-hmm. In this interview, Detective Bill Ross went over the evidence with Linda and said it suggested that she was the person who bashed Jeff with a bat, then shot herself. Linda was stunned. Hmm. She said she knew Jeff didn't believe she did it. He had told her as much. She said, I don't understand. Hmm. Ross reminded her of the impending divorce how she would lose the home she had a hand in building, the home she loved. Linda said she didn't think Jeff really wanted a divorce. He just wanted, quote, some time to himself. She Hmm. said Jeff was still supporting her financially and said, I have nothing bad to say about his treatment of me. Mm -hmm. But wasn't she upset about this woman coming to visit? Mm -hmm. Linda said, quote, I had plenty of time to get accustomed to what was going on. I was hurt, of course, but we also had some conversations, and he said some nice things. I had no reason to be angry with him. He was taking care of me. He was being fair, and he was being generous. She said that Jeff had even hinted he might give the relationship a second chance at some point. To me, this sounds like wishful thinking. Yeah, I know the cops were thinking that she was putting a positive spin on things because she wanted them to believe she had no reason to hurt them, and maybe that's true. Right. But I also think she really believed that they had a chance. I well, I think that he was being that. It was one of those things where he's trying to be nice, let her down easy and stuff, and she's taking it. To think yes. that we still have a chance. In fact, not to base everything we ever talk about again for the rest of our lives on the book I'm reading, The Gift of Fear, mm. but there is a chapter in that about how, like, stalkers, not that she's necessarily one, will take any tiny little yeah. positive thing that you're just throwing out to be nice or polite or whatever and turn that into this big yes. affirmation. Well, you think about that, like, and when you're a teenager and you're kind of our kind of sociopathic when you're a teenager, when you have a crush on somebody. Oh, yes. And, and he they, said, hi to me, yeah. what does that mean? Yeah. And then you sit there with your friends parsing it for two and hours And even your the friends, way he said like, it. it's even not, it's yes. not just you. It's just like, did you see? He looked at you and said hi. Right. Or did you see he smiled? Or, or he, he held the door open yeah. for me. You and, know. Yeah. Linda told Detective Ross that she was incapable of a violent act about losing jeff to someone else she was hurt not mad after about an hour of the interview she said she wasn't feeling well and left she pretty much figured out look she saw the writing on the wall well it's good that she she left yeah she's a smart woman to just be like her rights yeah and the interview wasn't it didn't annoy me like a lot of them do yes it wasn't like you did right they were just trying to get information from her and right about two weeks after this interview, on July 10th, 2009, Linda Dolloff was indicted for the attempted murder of Jeffrey Dolloff. She was also charged with elevated aggravated assault and false public alarm or report. She was arrested, and though she was released on bail, she was not allowed to, she was not allowed to go near her former home. According to Detective Ross, prior to Linda's arrest but before she was charged, she was allowed to go to the home she had shared with Jeff. The police were afraid she would hurt her husband, and Jeff was too, Ross 
according to Ross. Mm-hmm. He said Jeff would greet her in the driveway with a firearm on his hip. I think she was still staying at her sister's because uh-huh. she was recovering from, from her. Where did her sister live? I don't know. They didn't say. Uh-huh. They just showed this, like, brick bungalow. Uh-huh. And yet, and yet, in August of 2009, Jeff Dolliv told a private investigator he didn't think Linda was capable of hurting him. He believed this so much so that he didn't want to testify at her upcoming trial. He got into loud shouting matches with the prosecutors, according to a defense investigator. But by Linda's trial in April of 2010, he was ready to testify, and he did believe she did it. And you also wonder how much that type of brain injury affected his process as far as thinking and reacting and stuff. And by then, by the trial, he was saying that, yes, he had said she was not guilty to friends, but that was only to keep her placated in case word got back to her. Mm -hmm. According to some people, he was worried that she was going to try to attack him. I don't know if he really was worried about that, but whatever. Well, I'd be worried if I were attacked in that way. That I would in be some ways, yes, I understand I mean, why you he would be scared. I mean, you have the trauma of it. Yeah, someone, someone bashed you. Right. Linda Dolliff's trial lasted 15 days from the third week of April into May. Wow, that's long for me. The judge was Joyce Wheeler. Oh! The same judge we talked about in episode 22, the Anthony, Anthony Sanborn case. Mm-hmm. The prosecutor's theory was that Linda was distraught over her marriage ending. She was going to lose the husband she loved, her lifestyle, and the house that she helped build. She had harbored hopes that the marriage might be saved, but Jeff was clearly moving on. So she bludgeoned him with a bat and then shot herself to make herself look like a victim, too. She staged the scene to make it look like they'd had a romantic evening together because she thought he'd be dead so everyone would believe it. So there is question that they didn't have a romantic evening? According to Stephanie Anderson, the DA. How did did she stage it for a romantic evening? She put glasses of wine and whatever. I don't know. That's what Stephanie Anderson said, but... We'll the see. prosecutor. Yes, the prosecutor, which I will talk about. Okay. She lucked out because he couldn't remember anyway. Mm-hmm. For all they knew, they had had a lovely time. And they could, I mean, I'm not. I'm not you can have sex with that, somebody, then try to kill them. We'll talk about that after we after this. Not that I've I ever have done things that. to say about okay, that part yeah. of the right. story. Okay. The defense's argument was that Linda was okay with the divorce. She had accepted it. So she had no reason to want Jeff dead. Hmm. And even if she could shoot herself, which given the placement of the wound was not really possible, she just barely missed vital organs and could have died herself. Hmm. The physical evidence was not great in favor of the prosecution's theory. The shirt Linda was wearing had her blood from her gunshot wound, but only a little bit of Jeff's blood, some of it on the left cuff and some right under her right arm. Yet Jeff's bedroom was covered in blood. Surely her shirt would have more blood on it. There was no gunpowder residue on her shirt or any singeing from a muzzle flash. The absence of those two things suggested she was not shot at close range, so could it not have shot herself. The position of her injury on her right love handle (laughs) Mm -hmm. would mean Linda, a right-handed person, would have had to hold the gun in a very awkward position to be able to shoot herself. Normally, someone would shoot themselves on the other side of the body because they would be able to hold the gun comfortably and have a better grip. Mm. Also, her shirt had to be dug up from eight tons of waste at a waste treatment plant in South Portland. Police forgot to collect it from the hospital, and it was thrown out. It took police an hour and a half to find it. I didn't read in any of the coverage that the defense argued that any evidence on the shirt would have been compromised, but I can't imagine that they didn't. Linda's DNA was found on the bat, but not on the trigger of the gun. But even if it had been, she had already said she picked it up and it had fired. So if her hands were tested for gunpowder, which I didn't see mentioned in the evidence, 
or the gun had tested positive for her DNA, it wouldn't have mattered. Also, there was a DNA of an unknown male on the gun. And besides, she was too small, only about 5'4 and 110 pounds, to wield a bat with that kind of force. Daniel Lilly, the defense attorney, who's now deceased, he was a very big defense Mm -hmm. attorney in Maine, said that, well, he he wasn't big. He's Mm -hmm. a little roly-poly He was a big shot. He said that the bat was much too heavy for such a small woman. And why would she use Hmm. a bat anyway when there are guns in the home? In footage from the trial, he picks up the bat and says, quote, why bother with guns when you have such a wonderful weapon? The prosecutors had it all figured out, though. I'll get to her emotional state later. Mm -hmm. First, the shirt evidence. Yes, there was no gunpowder, but it can fall off clothing. And I guess there isn't always a burn from a shot, although I don't, if you're shooting yourself, I don't see how you can't get a burn. It depends on how far away the gun is. Yeah, but it would have to be really close if she was holding it. Like, right, she would have to hold it almost right against her. She's, the gun was like Well, this did big. it go in from her yes. front? Yes. So it yes. wasn't from the side? No. It was... Huh. No, it's not. They they mm. demonstrated yeah. it. The main crime lab was unable to support the theory with that evidence, but they did do something called a lead vapor test. Some chemical sprayed on the fabric turns purple. They explained it, but it was whatever. It's like luminol for, they, just for blood. Yeah. They filmed the test and showed it in court. They said that there was a spray of blood under Linda's arm that could could only be from blood splatter. Although the state's expert, when asked by 2020, said there were other reasons that he said that wasn't really true. It wasn't couldn't only be from blood splatter. He said like because she did say she went to check on Jeff, he could have like sprayed it from his nose or mouth. Yeah, on yeah her. If there was Stephanie Anderson, the Cumberland County District Attorney. And she's leaving this year. Mm. She's been the district attorney forever. Reminded the jury that Jeff said, while he and Linda were building the house, she did almost everything he did, so she was very strong, despite her size. As for how Linda shot herself, Anderson demonstrated to the jury using the same gun Linda had used. She held it with her left hand, with her left finger on the trigger, left hand, you know, but steadied the barrel with her right hand, pointing it to her right hip. She said Linda could have easily shot herself in that manner. She argued that Linda, being a yoga instructor, was well-versed in anatomy, would have known that shooting herself where she did would not be as harmful as other places on the body and would not hit any vital organs. The prosecution also said that ballistics tests showed that the person who shot Linda was not more than a foot and a half away, yet Linda claimed she couldn't see who did it. And last, Linda's state of mind. The prosecution had some bombshell evidence. Mm. On Linda's computer, they had found a file Linda had named Corinthians, as in St. Paul's letter to the Corinthians. It seemed to be a journal in the form of letters to Jeff. They don't seem to have much connection to St. Paul's letters, but no. In these writings, but maybe she just put it in there because she knew it was letter form. and Right, to remind her of what it was. Because when you hear the word Corinthians, if you've gone to church, you, you think, think of, of letters. Letter. And then, yeah, and she probably saw other people, if they're right. snooping, it wouldn't be letters to Jeff. Right, like you make a file, say like zoning variances or something, yeah. if it's actually got interesting stuff in it. In these writings, Linda expressed fear, frustration, anger. She talks about her hope for reconciliation and how she doesn't like the idea of someone else, namely another woman, enjoying the home she put her own sweat and tears into. So these were emails she wrote? No, it wasn't emails. It was just a journal, but it oh, was I see. in the form of letters to Jeff. Oh, but I it see. Was, I don't think but they ever... weren't letters she sent? No. Oh, okay. And I'm going to talk okay. about my feelings on this later, yeah. but this is a quote from some of what she wrote. I have no choices. 
I'm going to sign for divorce. However, I'm so, so scared. I have nothing. I have no idea what will happen. I'll live one day at a time. The only thing I know for sure is it will be extremely painful and difficult. One of the things that will be most difficult is to have someone else enjoying the fruits of our labor. Mm. Bottom line, I cannot stay like this. I cannot eat. I cannot sleep. I cannot breathe. I'm in a place where I cannot sustain myself. I'm not Linda. Linda and her lawyer objected to this evidence, saying it was not clear when it was written or even that Linda had written it. But it was allowed, and not only were passages read from it, but the quotes were projected on a screen for the whole courtroom to mm. see. The most anticipated witness was the victim, Jeff Dolliff. Mm. He testified for three days. Wow. He was asked about the bat that was the weapon, and he said he had owned it since 1975, and hundreds of people had used it. And they never did mention why it was friggin' half-burned. Well, but I have my theories about that. We'll talk about Oh, that. I was going to say it's possible they just had a bonfire and he was using it to poke the bonfire if he had a lot of other bats he used now. People That's don't true. use wooden softball bats that much anymore to play ball I with. I know. But anyway, go he on. He said that Linda did not react strongly when he told her that he frequently took women to dinner while traveling for business. Hmm. He shared an apartment, supposedly platonically, with one woman hmm. in Massachusetts right. and had been a guest sleeping in the guest room of another woman who was the one that was coming to Maine to meet everyone. Ah. The testimony didn't really help the theory that Linda was distraught and scorned. At the end of his testimony, when questioned by the defense, Jeffrey Dolliff told the court that he still felt responsible for Linda. He still paid her bills, and though he filed for divorce, they were still married. He said, I feel bad about the whole issue. She has no income and she's out of my house. On cross-examination by the prosecution, he said he did think she did it, but I wanted to keep Linda as calm and collected as I could, so I didn't have to worry about the neighborhood and anybody being damaged. Linda did not take the stand, which I can understand why, but at the same time, having that journal as evidence without her having a chance to explain or refute it, right. I don't know. I mean, I can understand why he, they don't do it, but I mean, without her being up there to say, look, I was just, maybe he felt the, the defense attorney, Daniel Lilly, I mean, he knows a hell of a lot more than me, but maybe he felt it wasn't worth the risk. Well, the burden of proof is on the prosecution. I know it. Yeah, they always say that, but you know. I know. On May 10th, 2010, Linda Dolliff was found guilty of attempted murder, elevated aggravated assault, and filing a false report. The jury deliberated less than seven hours. The news reports described Linda as, quote, showing no emotion, mm. which they always say that, I and know. it bugs the shit out of I me. Know. I mean, that she could be in shock. If you're found guilty right. of something, you know. On 2020, they spoke with some of the jurors immediately following the verdict. This is always... I know. Um, it always annoys me. I think the jury um, was seven women and five men. Mm -hmm. The interview had two men and three women who were willing to talk to them. All the women, according to one of the jurors, all the women initially voted not guilty. They said the reasons they eventually came around to guilty were the lead vapor test and the Corinthians document and the fact Linda was obviously physically capable of swinging a bat since she helped build her home. Mm -hmm. And since she helped build it and loved it so much, it made sense to them that she would have a hard time giving it up and her lifestyle up too. Oh, and also, which this part really annoys me, they said that all through the trial, Linda didn't show any emotion. She was stone cold, as one juror described it. Even when Jeff testified with all the effects of the bat attack, so obvious she showed no emotion. Mm, yeah, that bugs me, too. I don't like it when people... You can't judge That's someone's guilt. That's not evidence. Guilt. No, it's not. So, whatever. We'll talk about that after. Mm -hmm. Stephanie Anderson, district attorney, said that there are two Lindas. 
the peace-loving yoga Linda and the narcissistic psychopath. Mm, yeah. They love, prosecutors love hyperbole. I know. They, they love do. it, yeah. especially Stephanie Well, because Anderson. they know juries love I know. it. Anderson said that while she wouldn't call Linda a murderer, she is a woman who tried to kill her husband. Mm-hmm. On December of 2010, Justice Wheeler denied a motion brought by Linda Dallas' attorneys to either acquit or give her a new trial. The motion and response are lengthy, but the gist is that the defense said Stephanie Anderson made improper statements when, in her closing argument, she said, I think, several times before making a statement. Mm. During the trial, the judge instructed the jurors not to pay attention to those kind of statements, but rather to look at the evidence. Because the judge had instructed the jury at trial, she didn't think Anderson's statements made a difference to the outcome. Linda also argued that the inclusion of the Corinthians document was prejudicial, and they they objected to it strenuously during the trial, which, of course, they would. The judge said it was not unfairly prejudicial and was therefore okay. And she cited some case that said the probative value of evidence cannot weigh unfair prejudice. Something prejudicial can be shown if there's evidence. If it's evidence. There is some other stuff about evidence, but the one thing that I really liked, which you'll like, is the allegation of the of prosecutorial misconduct by D.A. Stephanie Anderson because during her closing argument, she made comments about what the dog, <laughs> Zoe, was thinking. <laughs> this is from the transcript. Prosecutor, we know that she, the dog, was there for what I call the last bloodshed event, the assault. You can hear it on the 911 tape. We know she was there for it. We hear her whimpering. We hear her crying. And when the police arrive, she can't get out of that house fast enough. We know that. Defense counsel, there's no testimony to that. This dog was never whimpering. I object to that as never having been presented. The judge said some legal stuff about evidence and the juror's recollection about evidence. Then Stephanie Anderson said, What do you think Zoe would do if Zoe is <laughs> What do you think Zoe would do if Zoe is watching mommy beat daddy? Because that's what she saw. She saw mommy beat daddy uh, and she couldn't wait to get out of the house. Poor Zoe. Again, Dan Lilly objected, saying there's no evidence the dog saw anything. And this is improper. Justice Wheeler, in her decision, said that since she spoke to the jury... Maybe that's why in the Norwich Walk murder-suicide we just had here in Maine this weekend, the guy killed the dog, too. Oh! I bet he killed the dog first just to hurt the lady, the woman. They do that, too. Justice Wheeler, in her decision, said that since she spoke to the jury and corrected the problem during the trial... It didn't rise to prosecutorial misconduct, so she denied that motion. On Friday, January 7th, 2011, thank you, Linda Dolloff was in court for her sentencing. The prosecution argued for the maximum sentence 30 years. A psychiatrist, Dr. Carlisle Voss, testified that Linda had, quote, cluster B antisocial personality disorder. According to DSM-5, and DSM is the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, antisocial personality disorder is characterized by a pervasive pattern of disregard for the rights of other people that often manifests, and I'm quoting them because, Mm -hmm. whatever, that often manifests as hostility and or aggression. Deceit and manipulation are central features. Cluster B refers to the type of behavior which is dramatic and emotional, erratic. The cluster B disorders share problems with impulse control and emotional regulation. To illustrate her disorder, the prosecution told the story of how a decade earlier, Linda Dolloff had had 
cosmetic surgery to make herself taller. Apparently, it involves having her legs fractured. Ah. She then lied to her friends and Jeff, her husband, about it. She told everyone she had a bone disease. Dr. Voss said her willingness to do something so extreme to get what she desired was a perfect example of someone with this disorder. Why would you want to make yourself taller? I don't know. And this type of person is not likely to rehabilitate. Stephanie Anderson said, This definitely is a person who will do anything and go to extreme measures beyond the comprehension of of reasonable people to maintain control. Daniel Lilly, Linda's attorney, said Linda should spend no more... How come you do that voice when you do Stephanie Anderson, but not when you do Daniel Lilly? I don't know. Do you think I have something against Stephanie? Yeah, it sounds like it. Sounds like you're trying to influence our listeners. Well, it's because she's so, like, hyperbolic. I know. Okay, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to throw you off track there. Daniel Lilly, Linda's attorney, said Linda should spend no more than three years in jail, and her lie about cosmetic surgery was nothing to do... Didn't I yell when I said him? No. has nothing to do with whether or not she is a threat to society. He said, if vanity is a crime, then we're going to have a lot of full jails. Mm-hmm. How's that? Yeah. He also mentioned that... Nice way to oversimplify a mental disorder. Well, he's her... I know, I know. He also mentioned that prior to trial, D.A. Anderson had offered Linda a three-year plea deal. I think usually they don't discuss settlement discussions in like that. I think it's right. supposed to be... Linda also mentions the plea deal to Judge Wheeler and said she didn't take it at the time because she wasn't going to admit to guilt or something she didn't do. But that's the way it works. You can't change it after right, the fact. Right. You're taking a gamble. Right. I mean, t- sorry. You take it or you don't. Justice Wheeler told Linda that her guilt or innocence was not a factor in the sentencing hearing. By law, she was bound by the jury's verdict. Linda's older sister, Patricia Small, testified on Linda's behalf and said, Linda is kind and loving, and I've never seen her violent toward anyone. Mm. We don't want to lose the person Linda is because she's been in prison too long. After the sentencing, a friend of Linda's, Charlene Barton, said that the diagnosis of Linda as having cluster B antisocial behavior disorder was psychobabble, and although she wasn't qualified to diagnose Linda, she was a licensed social worker, and she had known Linda for 10 years and never saw any of those traits. And I will say, if you know someone that's kind of a antisocial behavior type of person or or kind of a sociopath or psychopath, you can kind of tell. You can when you can tell. Maybe there's some that are so good at it you can't tell. I don't know. I think if you're around someone long enough, yeah. I don't know. I'm thinking of people I know. Like even it depends if, on how well you know them. Uh, yeah, but I'm just thinking of people I've worked with and stuff that I'm not like intimate with. You know what I mean? No. Yeah, but, but you don't know if you don't know that they're a sociopath. That's true. But then you could say that. that I mean, I don't know. Right. That's why they walk among us. We'll talk about it after. Oh, we have so much to talk about after. Just before Justice Wheeler handed down the sentence, Linda Doloff asked for mercy and claimed she was innocent. She said, I stand here in total despair. I'm 49 years old. I've lost everything. I asked the court for mercy for myself and my family. The charges and the conviction against me and the jury finding me guilty go against my abiding belief in nonviolence. During the hearing, Justice Wheeler said she wished Dr. Voss had testified at the trial. She said it was a strange case. She said, as a judge, my obligation is to accept the jury's verdict. Some say Dolph is evil and should be penalized. Mm. They say she did it and we shouldn't be talking about leniency. And I also know there are people here who say she didn't do it and we should give her be giving her every break there is. And there are also people here who don't really say she didn't do it, but they say they don't understand how she could have done it. Mm. But as a judge, I can't engage in those questions, even though she just did. Yeah, I know. 
of whether she did it or didn't do it. For me, the question is whether the evidence supports the verdict of the jury. In accepting the jury's verdict that she did commit these crimes, I have to conclude that she shows no remorse, empathy, or responsibility. Linda was sentenced to 25 years in prison with all but 16 suspended and four years probation. She also has to pay $15,000 out of her divorce settlement to Jeffrey Dalla for his medical expenses. As part of her probation, she will have to submit to a psychological examination and take any medic- medication she is prescribed. Jeffrey Dolliff and his family were not in the courtroom. T.A. Anderson said they'd been through enough. Daniel Lilly vowed to appeal the conviction. In November 2012, Linda Dolliff's conviction was upheld by the Maine Supreme Court. It was a unanimous decision. Chief Justice Lee Softly wrote, A properly instructed jury convicted Linda Dolliff after a lengthy trial. The evidence in this case was sufficient to support a guilty finding. Our ultimate task in reviewing for both harmless error and obvious error is to determine whether Linda received a fair trial. Having reviewed all of Linda's many challenges, we are not persuaded that any prosecutorial misconduct, even considered cumulatively, affected the jury's verdict. On 2020, Linda was asked if she was sorry for the attack on Jeff. She said she's sorry he's hurt, but she's not sorry for a crime she didn't commit. Mm -hmm. After her conviction, that was before her conviction when they were interviewing her on 2020. After her conviction, she said to Jim Avila of 2020, I've lost my husband, my home, my family, friends, my way of life, my financial security, my pets, my dignity, my privacy, and now my freedom. So unless you're sitting where I am, judging me is not right and it's unjust. Jeff said, terrible sadness and it's not for me there's parts of me that's never going to be the same there's no question about that she has given up everything if i thought she was remorseful if i thought she just made a terrible mistake if she'd apologize i'd try to help her linda is currently serving her sentence at the maine correctional center in windham maine only about a dozen miles from the home she worked so mm. hard to build with her former husband. She's scheduled for release in 2023. The last article I read about her said she was going to the Wyndham Correctional Center, which has a woman's, most women are there. But there must be one in Warren, too, because they said she would probably be transferred to Warren. Yeah, they added a woman's thing in Warren. But then I, there's a thing you can do, find a prisoner. Oh. The main corrections, or she's in Wyndham. And I went to visit her, and now we're friends. Yeah, yeah. No. I, that's why you were so sympathetic. No, to I'm her not in sympathetic to her. But this is my this is how I feel about it. I think she probably did do it, but I don't think that journal she had should have been evidence. Right. What you write in a personal journal are your deepest. And feelings. I may I probably have stuff written like that too. Yeah. And she wasn't saying I hate Jeff. I'm going to go bash his head in right. anyway. She was saying was, I'm sad. The, he's leaving me for right. somebody else. The only thing about that journal. Is, and I don't know if it should have been entered for evidence or not, but it totally contradicted how she said yes, she felt. that's true. And the, and the prosecution needed some way to yes. show this woman with sociopathic tendencies yes. is presenting a face of things that's that true. isn't true. There wasn't a lot of evidence, and I'm not saying, like I said, I think she probably did it, but I also think that the evidence... If I were on the jury, I would have had a hard time because the evidence was not... If I were on the jury, and I know this isn't how you're supposed to think about things, is, well, there weren't the direct evidence necessarily tying her, such as the evidence was, made it seem so unlikely 
that it wasn't her. Yes. That that, if it were a home invasion, which they never proved, I, I, no, they you didn't. know, nobody ever said if the house was unlocked or not. They thought that somebody could have, there were other entrances that right. someone could have easily left. Right. And I'm vaguely remembering, I saw that, I, maybe it was the 2020 or something years ago about it. Like this, oh, she couldn't have shot herself that way. She couldn't have wielded the baseball bat. All that type of speculation is not evidence. I know. I it's know. like what likely happened. What does the evidence show that likely happened? There, there was eighteen hundred dollars in cash, the three hundred in his wallet, and the I know, fifteen hundred. And so, why was this a home invasion? I know. And why were there two weapons used? And why was if the home invasion was to hurt them? Why was the gun that was under the envelope of money in a I drawer know. used instead of the home? Why and didn't a baseball he bring bat something? That was way off in some corner of the garage. Yeah, why didn't he bring something? And why didn't he use what's in ha- what's at hand, like the knife from the knife block in the kitchen? Let's just speculate that they yeah. had one. Instead of rummaging for weapons, so this home invader went into Jeff's bedroom, found the gun under the money, yeah, which I means know. he either knew them or something. And didn't then, take the money. Then happened to shoot Linda in the hallway, somehow dropped the gun, then go beat Jeff to, I know. to the edge of death. With you know, and so I'm not saying that that's all evidence against her. No. That evidence would say, gee, this is so unlikely that it's somebody coming my, in the house My and doing theory it. of how it happened is this, and not because I'm so I'm a professional investigator, you know. Yeah, just like but, me. Well, I've but, read this book. But so. my theory about it would be, I don't know what if she planned it or not, but she beat him. She may have changed her shirt. Like, they don't know when he was beaten. Right. They don't know at what point in time. Maybe if the bat was burned, maybe she did try to... Put we it, don't know. She could have burned her shirt and used the bat to... Because and then she put a new shirt on and right. then she shot herself. Right. It, right. And she shot herself when she realized, oh, oh shit, shit, I can't beat myself with a bat. Like, everybody wants everything laid out like it's some carefully laid out, well-written, you know, fiction novel. And the thing is, people, especially if they do things... Whether they plan them or not, they forget things. They don't think them through. They're not acting rationally. And he may have said or done something that night that really pissed her off. She didn't want to leave. You know, he wanted wanted a woman who loved that property as much as he did. And that's what he got. Well, the other thing I want to say is the fact that they had this romantic evening, whether or not they did. And they could have easily. You can kill the shit out of somebody. I was going to say that, that that could have been. A factor because they had this romantic evening, but he st- maybe she thought bingo. Oh well, well maybe this woman's not going to come and, and now, and it turned out. And then he's gee, like, and then he's like, oh, you still right, uh, right, you still have to leave because Susie from Massachusetts yeah. is going to be here at seven o'clock tomorrow and morning, like, and I don't want you here. That. You know, and now he's snoring, and right. how can he just turn around like she's in the end? How can he be lying there snoring away? Snoring away and here I am, no so care. fucking upset. He doesn't have a care in the world and here i am i'm gonna get kicked out of my ass because he right. found somebody and that else. all goes with and, and i'm not a psychiatrist but i am but we just like do we yeah. no but i've but i've been reading a lot about certain <laughs> things no i know that sounds lame but no like for my mystery writing i need stuff and i'm sure. very interested in why people do the things yes. they do and coercive control and that's what we all want and also know. i'm very interested like that book the Gift of Fear by Gavin De Becker, and it was written 20 years ago, but points out something that you and I say frequently. People are very superficial in their observations of other people. Oh, he's, he's a nice guy. He's a blah, blah, blah. And they don't. And one of the things he says in that book is people say, oh, I just intuitively knew that person was bad. Or I just intuitively mm-hmm. knew something bad was going to happen. And what he points out is 
not that there's anything wrong with intuition, but there are little signs that you don't even realize because you're programmed to see things a certain mm-hmm. way. Little signs that mean something's wrong or something's off or somebody's off. Part of your brain is saying this isn't right. Mm-hmm. And and he says that when like there's a domestic violence murder or a stalking type murder or something and people say, Oh, I never saw that coming and it's funny now that I noticed that and that yeah. that murder suicide we just had here in yes. Maine this weekend or a couple of days ago that people say, oh, I never saw it coming, and then they start talking about the people, and there's all these little things that point to it. The fact that she wanted to stay there yeah. was not normal. Even if you are unhappy, would, even if you're not the one in a relationship, left, yeah. and you're unhappy, you don't want to be there. And you don't want to meet the other woman. I know a lot of times women, uh, and men too, but people in a, in a relationship, when the other person's either unfaithful or has flings, even though they don't like the other person doing this, it's almost like a point of pride, but he always comes back to me, or she always right. comes back to me. And I think she felt like, okay, he's going to fool around and whatever, but I'll be I'll be here. It was stalker type behavior. She, it was, and I think and, and she I forced it. And he sounds like a nice guy, the kind of guy that's kind of go along. And he kind of yes, I think he just. I mean, he obviously lived what he, he did, what he wanted to do, right? And he was obviously well well off and able to do what he wanted to do. But he did feel responsibility. But he was a nice guy, and he right. still is a nice guy. And I mean, he is. I seem to remember. Life, like he's and also a home invader. And I don't even know if they brought this up. And again, this is just from my readings and listenings. But you don't bash somebody's face in. Well, you would shoot people. You would, first of all, yeah, they took the gun out of the drawer in his bedroom. There's no dispute about that. So why don't you shoot the guy in the bed? I know. I don't understand. So the logical. There were guns everywhere. The most logical explanation seems to be that, like, yes. as you said, she got upset. She beat him, tried to she beat him to death she was maybe sleeping. She does. And I don't know if she And has... then she said, oh, should I have to yes. cover this up? And, like many people before her, Charles Stewart, yes. Jeffrey McDonald, you hurt yourself, but not bad enough. And the defense saying, oh, but she could have hit a vital organ. Charles Stewart, the one in Boston, which I'll do someday, shot himself in the fucking stomach yeah. and almost died. If you're that kind of sociopath, you take that chance. The love handle is not an organ that's going to, you know, even though she was in good shape and hers were probably smaller than (laughs) like mine or something. And you don't think things out. Like after the fact, people say, oh, but then why did she do this? And why wasn't this? And why? Because you're in this state of bash someone's head. Right. And too bad the dog couldn't testify. Just like Cato, the uh, Nicole's dog. But I was also thinking of that horrible, horrible book where the guy's wife committed suicide and he tried to find a way to make his dog talk to tell him what oh, happened. Jesus, it was I a Rhodesian. I, I it's like the worst it. book I've ever I, read well, in my life. I'm not going to read it. But the other thing I wanted to say before I forget is I know I said I didn't know she's a if she has that disorder. That seems How kind can of, we know? And I know I said that sometimes, you know, you can a lot of times you can tell. But the other thing is it doesn't mean that she or she may not have been as bad as some of the people I've known that are sociopathic. She may have just been a little enough that she kind of harbored these and it kind of grew. Like she maybe well, she was obsessive somehow. Yes, well, we, we don't all know, know. people know. who, when a relationship is ending, they are not. They become not themselves. And Sometimes. she had a and she had a lifestyle that she liked a lot. Well, she didn't want to change. Wouldn't, I wouldn't mind. And that. she felt, you know, and it's not. Part I of mean, it is, she obviously knew he was. There were other women, right? Whether and or not she, she wasn't jealous because and, she, you and know, she, she felt she had made this personal investment into the house and everything. And it's not, 
you know, people try to make it simple. Well, she didn't want to leave the house, so she tried to kill him. But it's bigger than that. It had become part of her life. She was possessive of it. She wasn't just losing. She was losing a lot. Mm -hmm. And it changed her perception of herself and her lifestyle. And as we know, too, people who are narcissistic or sociopathic can't stand the public perception of them being changed she was going to go from this like lady of the land lady of the estate or whatever to living in what in some brick bungalow with her sister or some apartment in Biddeford or something teaching yoga in some dusty studio somewhere instead of in her beautiful home maybe she could have joined the Alexander or Anastasia in Alexandra (laughs) the yoga twins yes but she is blonde and pretty like they are so right so anyways, I thought that was very... I remembered only some of it. It was very... It, it was I coming forgot, back to me when... I forgot a lot of stuff or didn't... Because I had read about I, it at the time. It's an interesting case. I give him a lot of credit. He... I mean, you just keep going on when you have... To be such a Can forgiving you person. Yeah, and not having a sense of smell and half your face being numb and not being able to taste things. And, and I'd probably lose some weight if I yeah. did that. But thank you. You You know, there's no end to the interesting main, not that we're a main crime podcast. But a lot of them are couples yeah. killing each other. Yeah, or trying, or trying to. to. But anyway, I think we have some recommendations coming up. Yes, we do. <laughs> so it's kind of exciting in our recommendations. Once again, we're going to use our NNW rating yeah. system. Negative Nellie's watching. I almost said nervous Nellie's watching, but we're not nervous. But this negative. is the first time that we're both we're jointly rating something together. Yes. And we don't know what the other person's rating is, although we saw this film together. Yes, So we did. we did discuss it a little bit afterwards. We did. And the film is a documentary called Killing for Love that we saw at the Portland Museum of Art last week. It was interesting. There was also a panel about innocent people being convicted yes, afterwards. Was. That was interesting. It, Anthony Sanborn yeah. is attorney, Amy Fairfield, and some other people. Some other people. Anyway, we don't want to. It was pretty good. It's called Killing for Love, Das das Verschrecken. Das Verschrecken is the original title, which means The Promise. Because it's a German documentary, which we didn't realize. We didn't realize. And which affected some of my perceptions of it, because I didn't know it was made in another language. But we can talk about that as we we go on. So what we're going to do is go through each of the ten... Rating the elements, Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments, that's right. The ten ner- and talk about negative. them and then say whether we're... What our score is. Whether we're taking a point away or not okay. and go on. And and for those, we won't go through the whole thing right now, but everybody starts with a 10. Yes. Everything we rate starts with a 10 and it gets points taken away for things. Yes. Because we're negative. We're negative. So that's- the first thing is bad reenactments. Which... And I would say the only thing they had that were could be reenactments were people reading their letters, and yeah. I thought they did a good job. They did good. They had two German actors. Doing right. They it. had a young. Well, I didn't even realize. Oh, wait, well, let's do an overview first of what the movie's about. Okay. In 1985, this couple from Virginia, Derek Hasem and his wife Nancy, were found murdered in their apartment. Brutally. Brutally murdered. Wow. That <laughs> I know. Brutally. I know. Um, they were stabbed to death. Their daughter, yes. Elizabeth. Now, this Elizabeth has been... Had this been, Elizabeth. This, she, so she was 21. He was 18. 
Her parents were murdered. They were ultimately arrested a year later in Mm -hmm. Germany. And we'll kind of get into that as we go on. Or not in Germany, in London. And both found guilty and imprisoned. He's German. He was the son of a diplomat. Yes. Or is. And she's daughter of these And the film lays out the case that he was, he's been falsely imprisoned and didn't commit this murder. And it intersperses archival footage of the trial Which and we'll stuff. Which we'll talk about as we go through. With an interview with him in prison yes. now that he did in German, which at the time I thought was so that the guards and stuff, w- that he'd feel freer to talk. But it turns out it was a German documentary. And we'll talk more about that more because I talked yes. about that. Yes, mm. and it was pretty good. But, I thought it was good. But let's, So bad reenactments are number one thing. I would say... The people reading their letters, which is the only reenactment issue, which is good in itself when they don't try Imogene to... Imogene Poot was Elizabeth and Daniel Gruel was Jan. And the guy's letters sounded like they were being read by... They were read in English, but a young man with a German accent... The woman sounded, Elizabeth Hayson, who was born in Canada and had lived in Europe a lot, had this kind of, one of those kind of upper-class Englishy type accents. The letters were read in kind of that breathy upper class that when we heard her testify, it was very similar. So I thought they did a good job with it. Yes. I had no issue with that. So they keep their point. So that's good. Narrative cliches. I don't have any. I don't have any. I don't have any. I would say not as such. But um, when we get to the next yes. issue, there were some, but those are more people in the film, and then the film maybe not necessarily presenting them as cliches or stereotypes, but it wasn't enough for me to take away okay. any points. So the, yes, the next one would be racial gender obtuseness. Yes. I don't have any of that. There was some... I don't know if you would say it was in the story or if it had an effect. I mean, it was part of the story. The gender obtuseness was part of the story. It wasn't necessarily right. There was the fault of the documentary. Well, in a way, see, my feeling is in a way it was. You know, there was gender obtuseness. There was no racial obtuseness, basically, because there were only white white. people in this. But gender obtuseness, because while in a lot of cases it was the perceptions of people in the documentary to the gender obtuseness that gave her kind of a break in a lot of ways and were tougher on um, the young man. I don't think the documentary did a good job of giving that context. Yes, they didn't. They didn't. In fact, there was one point where she admits to doing it. And and a cop immediately in London, and the cop immediately says, don't be silly. Yeah. But they don't put... But they don't... They they don't don't give it a... Stress it. Right. So I'm taking away... A half a point, Ooh, okay. Because I felt like the it was the documentary's job to put that kind of um, and also kind of the um, to put it into a context. The xenophobic nature. They did talk about that, though. They so, did. Yeah. They did. I just felt that the the gender break that she got yes. was not given enough context by the documentary. It wasn't. And they did mention her attractiveness. She's very poised. Yeah. And pretty. That look that's very ethereal. Ethi- yeah, like like upper crust type of like almost a lady princess die yeah, kind of and. And they did mention that, but yeah, okay, I'll, I'll give you that. Okay, next, lack of good visuals. And we're adding to visuals, we're also adding audio, because, and we're not talking about like people like us who are not technically Suck. advanced, so our audio <laughs> sometimes sucks, or that our voices are annoying. But in this case, I felt like the 
easiest part to follow was where he was speaking in German. Yes. Because they had subtitles. Yes. And the archival footage they showed of which, the trial. Which well, was tons, which was great. The 30-year-old archival footage. The thirty-year-old archival footage needed friggin' subtitles yes, definitely because did. I could not understand yes. what they were saying. And when I found out this was a German film, I'm like, okay, so they probably had German subtitles, yes. so they didn't care that you couldn't yes. understand what people were saying. Because you could understand a Jan's um, voice and speaking were, were fine. So on the German side, that was probably. But, but lots of times when the attorneys were were pacing around the courtroom, muttering their attorney things and stuff, I could not understand. Oh, what and, 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 and I hate to sound soft spoken yes. too. And I hate to sound like our mom, but people were muttering yes. the sound quality from the trial. Yes. It was supposedly the first trial shown on TV, and I'm not. Totally it was a, like a local news. Um, right. I read on the documentary site it was the first trial ever shown on TV, and I'm not sure that's correct, but it was shown on local TV it's pretty early. On. And it's there's a big difference between the type of film. Yeah, filming that was done back yeah. then, and when you translate like a video it, camera sitting there, right? And when you translate it digitally, you lose sound and visual quality. And the visuals were fine because they're saying, "Hey, this is." It old. was great. I mean, in fact, I mean, it I, was grainy, but it worked. Yeah, it was. It, but, it, but they did definitely. But they needed to have English subtitles for the English speaking yes. courtroom archival stuff. So I took away a point. For and that. I notice on a lot of these cheesy true crime shows we watch, they actually do have a lot of times when they have the like the interrogation room stuff, they do have subtitles because they're hard to hear. Right. It's hard so to I hear. took away a point. I took took away a point as well. Missing pieces. I didn't think of any. Really, they talked to a lot of the original investigators and had all sides of the story. They had lawyers. They had the original doofus cop investigator. What? No, keep going. Oh, yes. This is my path. I thought the wealth of archival footage was very helpful. Yes. I thought that that was very good. Well, I don't disagree with anything you said. The missing pieces were the biggest issue I had with this documentary. Ooh, Ooh, maybe I'll change mine if, they had when you remind me They had more. trouble filling in the blanks. I would have liked to know about more about her, obviously, sociopathic tendencies. He's portrayed as an exchange student kind of at first, you think. And then it's clear his family lived in Atlanta for years. So at first you get this impression and maybe it was. And part of the thing is they don't have a narrator, which is fine. And I like documentaries like that. But it was very difficult to put some of the pieces yes. together. Yes. And part of that is the storytelling, which I'll get to later. But a lot of it is there were things that weren't answered. Their flight from justice remains unclear. We don't know how many siblings she had. Apparently she had she a had lot. Two brothers. Yeah. Yes. Some of whom had issues with things that happened at the crime scene. We find out later that sketchy things happened at the crime scene, but that's never, it's never really made clear. Yeah. It's never really made clear what they were. The tidbits about why she would do this are kind of tossed out there for us to pick up, as are the crime scene things. There are inconsistencies in her story. If you're not paying attention, you're going to miss. We get little hints of from his testimony. And if I could subtract more than one point, okay. I would. You're, no, 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 uh, no I, I agree. I and I'm, forgot so I'm a lot saying, of things. So I'm, <laughs> so I'm taking away one point okay. because, and I'll get into more when we get to the storytelling part, but... 
the there were so many missing pieces it was a lot of work to put the narrative together while still trying to focus on yes. okay. what was going yes. on with him so yeah okay, i took so away a point i agree that. with you now because now you're I reminding me you. yeah. no you're reminding me of things i'm going to take away a point too because okay. i wanted to know more about her sociopathic tendencies because people just mentioned well, them they in had, passing they, they showed didn't... a clip from the larry king show with two authors who had written a book about yeah. it and one of the authors says something really interesting about her as a sociopath and that's the only yeah. time and then you get a little but you get some hints of it from sub- things right. that her brothers say yes, and it would have gone a lot farther to explain why this 18 year old boy would have yes. done what he okay did. yes i i will you have swayed me yeah Inaccuracy and anachronisms. I found none. None. No. So my, the storytelling, I had some issues with it. It was pretty good in a lot of ways. I thought the plus to it was all the archival. um, Yes, it was great. uh, Court scenes and the fact that we could see like Jan's when he was a boy. And then now I wish they could have interviewed Elizabeth, but she apparently wouldn't be interviewed. But it, like you said, I wrote this in my notes there, that I like I like the type of documentaries with with minimal narration. Yes. But it started out kind of weird. Yes. The documentary you didn't know exactly know what was going on, which is fine, but it wasn't it wasn't tied up enough and it wasn't a linear story. Right. And which I wanted to know so maybe fine. that would be missing pieces. But like, yeah, but I felt well it, the story unspooled well because you want to say, yeah. okay, there's this horrific murder. Yes. What happened? And you learn as it goes on that this kid was kind of manipulated into doing it. And I like the way they framed it with him talking now. Yes. In, and I really liked him talking he in was, German. He, I, found I that. liked that and, too. But I found the timeline very confusing. And a lot of this yes. does go back to the missing pieces. But little things like having... Like, explaining why he was speaking German, which, okay, it's a German documentary, now I get it, but the rest was in English. You know, the interviews were in English, and um, because he obviously spoke English very well. And I don't have an issue with him speaking German, but without knowing it was a German-made documentary, I thought while watching it, he's speaking in German so he can speak freely, because they had this guard and the film guy (laughs) sitting there, and they both looked so bored, and you realize, because they didn't understand a word. So I thought they should say why he's speaking German. So now that I know it's a German documentary, okay, maybe not. But there were a lot of little hints at things, and and I got really confused by the timeline. Like, so they fled to London... But you just hear references and references to they it. They almost not assume clear. like you already know the story. They assume you know way more than yes. what you know. And that's what bothered me. They needed to. There needed to be more background or a timeline somehow, so we would know what was going on. I I felt like it could have been less confusing. I thought where they did a good job was they really talking to all the people who a lot of them are retired, the people that were involved in the original investigation and trial. They were all the only one that I thought was a doofus was Ricky the but, cop. But but it was good because one thing they did was well saw. is he would say something like, "No, we never had anybody profile this," and then they you they would talk to people who they would show the report from the yeah. FBI profiler and stuff. So they did that really they well. They did that well, and all the people, the other people who they talked to were very well-spoken and interesting. There was an investigator, and there there were two investigators, the ball guy and the guy with the mustache. Right. 
The ball guy had a little dog, or, or no, it's a cat. <laughs> yeah, the <laughs> cat that you kept seeing, and that was another thing. They that weird. I know some people like this in a documentary. The keepers kind of did this too, but it makes me impatient. Although I didn't mind it too much in this, where they just show, or, and I know it's artsy, and, pe- and there's reasons people do it, but they just show a random thing, yeah. like the bird outside the window oh, or yeah. the cat walking Although across I liked the, the cat. Lane. I liked the cat. Yes. I took a point away. I took a point, yeah, because I just, it was hard to follow. Right, um, there's a lot of information. And I wanted to know more. I, I wanted did want to know, know more. what and, was And the going story, on. to me, the storytelling and the missing pieces kind of go hand in hand, yes. but they both get points taken away. Freshness, yeah, it's yeah. a story. It, we're not seeing the same old story told the same old way. I wasn't way. aware much of the, I might have at some point read about it, but I... I, I remember him, it. and I remember him being found guilty when I saw him, I yes. remember. But, and it's not just telling about a case that isn't, that everybody isn't telling about, but also the way they tell it isn't told in, in obvious, the obvious way. And I know I just spent five minutes or whatever bitching about the storytelling, mm-hmm. but I'm talking, aside from that, with the interviews with him now, the archival footage, they tell the story in a way that is the good mm-hmm. parts they do. They do it in a way that you're not sitting there going, I've seen it all before. Yeah, I know. know. And the good thing about not having a narrator, but even the people, no one used any cliches. Like, right. I don't know. I yes. saw no tears falling down her face or right. some bullshit that like kind that. Of bullshit. God, I hate that stuff. So no, so they kept their point for that repetition. There really wasn't no. any unnecessary repetition. There, really, there wasn't enough, probably. Yeah. And we didn't know what was... And know. beating the drum... No, no, in fact, in fact well, they well, let the, us they, they let, let us decide. decide. Obviously, the documentary's point of view is that this guy is in prison and shouldn't be, and that's my point of view too. And yes. I feel like they, they did a good job us. of they showed us, didn't tell us. And my only complaint is they could have showed us a little better. I would have liked to have seen yes more about Elizabeth from the documentary. What I gather happened was she. She had him, you know, we were right. going to meet in D.C. and do blah, blah, blah. And she had him and buy And he was there tickets. all night. Right. She, he kind of, she used him to set up an alibi for herself that she and he right. had spent the night. And she wasn't there. And I think it was even a long game on her part. I almost feel yes. like it's, yes. she manipulated she him from the mark. beginning yeah. because she wanted to kill her parents. Yes. And did a nice long and she basically game framed with him. this kid and framed him. And I think she had somebody else helping her to do it. And she the used... Actual crime right and she used not the fact do that, it for her we don't know right he was an 18 year old virgin yes. who was just enamored of this yeah. graceful lovely older quote-unquote yes. older woman who told him she loved him yeah and and they could have made a lot of hay with that whole dynamic cliche dynamic but they they let the um people speak for themselves and did a good job so there was, this is how you don't bang the drum, but still tell your story. Yes, they did a very good job of that. I, I was very, it was refreshing to me. Yes. Because it's like, I'm not, we're not idiots. Right, you don't have to. I, we can look at what he says. We can mm-hmm. look at, and um, for, like I said, it would have been nice to see. I just, I just would have liked, I just felt it would have been done better overall if there had been more details available in the story hadn't been told in such a confusing way. So I ended up taking off 3.5 points Ooh, for a 6.5. I have a 7. And I want to say that... But I, I still recommend a, it. A quote of Jan that he said, 
I felt like the hero in Charles Dickens' novel, A Tale of Two Cities, who gave his life for love. Right. And he just wants to be extradited to uh, Germany, em- Germany, where they will not make him serve any time. Yeah. And it's funny, too, how she used literature as an English major. They were Romeo and Juliet. It was A Tale of Two Cities. Yeah. There was some other Shakespeare in there. It was. I recommend it. I highly recommend it. I really I highly do. Recommend I thought it. it was good. What it makes me want but to we do... we still have to criticize because that's what we are. That's what we do. And just because you like something doesn't mean it can't it be better. It can't be perfect. And it makes me want to find out more about this case and possibly read the book that the two guys were talking to yes. Larry King about. Too. Yes, I saw books online when I was... And I asked a question at the panel afterwards... That no one answered. That, that um, because there was some mansplain, serious mansplaining going on up on the panel, and I should have just asked Amy uh, Fairchild... Um, Fairfield. Fair, Amy, Amy Fairfield. Fairfield. This question... But, you know, people talk about how forensics and stuff has have changed over the years. I'm wondering how much people's perceptions of human behavior, sociopathy, and how back then it was, oh, this wonderful girl, she was so lovely, she wouldn't have brutally killed her parents like this. And another thing we didn't talk about with visuals, they showed some pretty bloody crime scene photos, yeah. but I liked that. Because you, I think you really need to show. And what the way they did it, uh, people were kind of like, oh, yeah, but, uh, yeah, you got to see yeah, it. But we were talking about, with, but nobody answered that question. But I, I, I was asking in the case of wrongful convictions, so much in a lot of cases is based on people's targeting a suspect and then trying to make the crime fit the yes. suspect. But now we understand more of how of human behavior that. Anyone in whatever cases can commit a crime. I've always thought that too. Though. Me too. So my it question on the circumstance. So my question to them was, in light of that, do you think this there would there will be less? I can't remember how I worded, but fewer wrongful convictions because I mean, no just as forensic technology yeah. has. And Amy Fairfield was actually nodding when I said it, but then this other attorney who was on the panel, a guy kind of took over and he gave a really brusque answer. And then he went back, this guy before me had asked this five minute question. He goes, but back to that other question, blah, blah, blah. He wanted to talk more about that. So in any case, but I think, yeah, I think people are more aware anyway, but so that's our show for today. Yes. We're going to go eat Easter lunch. Well, I would call it Lupper because it's at two 30 because our brother um, who engineered all this that you could either get an 8 o'clock reservation or a 2.30 which I could have told him you're not going to get a a reservation on Easter Sunday but in any case so it's not really brunch it's lupper our mom's favorite restaurant the good table in Cape Elizabeth I think we can say that right and we're here again speaking of talking about think tank co-working and it's a beautiful day it's actually like spring yep the sun's out and the traffic's roaring by on 295 and we'll be back said Every bunny calm right. down. I did a story about that. <laughs> those electric signs on the highway. They because they had a contest that I have to do a follow up so people could submit their own phrases Ooh. and the winner gets these prizes. Remember when that somebody somebody changed one that's a danger zombies ahead or something? Yeah, one of those signs. But in any case, we'll be back next time and it'll be my turn. Yay! And you can find our website, crime and stuff online. Yes. And we're on Twitter, we're on Twitter. Facebook. Just look for you crime can and donate stuff. to help us Patreon um, on Patreon. You can find links to you can how to follow donate. us on Twitter. Uh huh. And you can and find Facebook like us. And you can find links on how to donate on our webpage. Oh yes. 
And you can write, like us and review us. And um, we'll see that... you in a couple weeks. Yeah, a couple weeks. Yeah. Thanks for okay. listening. Bye bye. Anthony Sanborn yeah. is attorney Amy Fairbanks and some Fairfield. other people. Amy Fairfield and some other people. Amy uh, Fairchild. Um, Fairfield. Fair- Amy, Amy Fairfield. Fairfield. <laughs>